Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. To the reliability of the Bible. And so if you're here this morning and you have those questions and maybe you've been invited by a friend to come, we're glad that you're here. We're glad that you've come to Emmanuel Baptist Church. We want this to be a safe place for you to ask questions and to explore the truth, and we want to be available to answer those questions for you. Um, a few years ago, uh, Barna did a research project that spanned about three years, and they conducted a survey of over 2,000 Americans of all ages, and they asked them questions about their view of the Bible. And what they found out in this survey was that the millennials, the younger generation, has a way different view of the Bible than those than the baby boomer and older generations. So when they asked the question, did they believe the Bible was sacred? 90% of baby boomers and older agreed, while only 65% of millennials agreed. When asked if they believe the Bible is totally accurate in all the principles that it teaches, only 30% of millennials agreed with that compared to 58% of those in baby boomers and older. And around 56% of millennials believe the Bible teaches the same spiritual truths as other ancient texts. You saw the video. You look at the statistics. We live in an age of biblical illiteracy where people just aren't reading the Bible, people don't know the Bible. And we can complain a lot about how the world out there doesn't know the Bible, but what concerns me as pastor is how many of our children and youth in church and in evangelical churches across the country aren't reading and understanding and believing and living by the Bible. And there's a lot of people that struggle with how does the Bible relate to science? How does the Bible relate to history? How does the Bible relate to ethics, especially sexual ethics, gender, and things like that? I believe we are losing a generation to the falsehoods of the world that blatantly questions the validity of God's word. So we live in a culture where people just aren't reading the Bible. But in addition to that, there's the new atheism. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the new atheism, but there's a lot of popular teachers and people on YouTube, on Facebook, all across college campuses that are promoting atheism. And one of the leading proponents of this movement is named Christopher Hitchens. And in his book, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything, he wrote this, quote, the Bible was put together by crude, uncultured human mammals. We're also inundated with television shows on the Discovery Channel, like The Lost Tomb of Jesus, Bible Mysteries Explained, National Geographic Mysteries of the Bible, that bring a lot of confusion to people as well. So we live in a world of biblical illiteracy, skepticism, new atheism, television, media, 
But yet, what's making it even more difficult is there are very prolific and popular ex-evangelical Christians who are now atheists and promoting this view that you can't trust the Bible. Now, one of the best examples of this is a man named Bart Ehrman. I'm not sure if you've heard who Bart Ehrman is. Bart Ehrman went to Moody Bible College. Then he later went to Wheaton, two famous evangelical schools. And then he went to Princeton Theological Seminary, where his views started to change. And now he outright denies the faith. And basically, he's written a book, a best-selling book. He's very popular. He travels all across the world. He has numerous of people following him. He's got a famous book called Misquoting Jesus. And in his book, Misquoting Jesus, what he says is basically, we can't trust the New Testament because it's been corrupted, it's been changed, and it's gone through all these iterations so that what we have today is a corrupted document that cannot be trusted. And yet before that, he was a Bible-believing Christian. So, this is where we are in America. Younger people not believing in the authority of the Bible. We've got the rise of the new atheism in America. You have ex-Bible-believing Christians that are now atheists promoting a faulty view of the Bible. And so the question we've got to ask is, okay, how do we address this? How do we as a church equip you to answer these questions that maybe your friends and family members and people that you work with, or maybe you're even here this morning that you're asking? How do we encourage our younger children to live out their faith. You know, you used to say, we want to get the, the youth established in the faith so that when they go off to college, they're not confused. We don't have to wait till they're off to college. It's happening in middle school and high school now. The way that the world is coming in and affecting things. 2 Timothy 1.14 says this, By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. We need to guard the good deposit that was entrusted to us. The Bible's been entrusted to us. We need to guard it. Jude 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We have the faith that's been delivered to us, and we need to, to stand on that. And then Proverbs 22.6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he's old, he will not depart from it. This morning's message is going to be a little bit different than most messages that I preach. We're not going to be looking at a book of the Bible and going through Exodus. We're actually going to be doing a little bit of apologetics this morning. What, what do we think about the Bible? How reliable is the Bible? How do you answer the skeptics out there that say you can't trust what we have today? When you look at the Discovery Channel or the, or the, the National Geographic Channel and all these different things, how do you as a Bible-believing Christian, how are you equipped to answer these questions? So what I'm going to do for this morning is we're just going to ask some questions and then I'm going to attempt to answer those questions this morning. By the way, there's a lot of information that I'm going to be giving you that I don't expect you to remember. So I've made extra copies of the sermon manuscript out there that has a lot of this stuff in here. So it may be helpful just to listen, or you can take notes, however you want to do that. But we'll have the resources out at the table afterwards. So here's question number one. What does the Bible say about itself? 
Let's just start there. What does the Bible say about itself? And so we're going to look at 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17. 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17. How from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Just some few things we need to understand about this passage of Scripture. Paul makes mentions to the sacred writings, and he also says they're all Scripture. Now, in the context of Timothy here, he's talking about the Old Testament because the New Testament had not been written. So he's talking about the written word of God, the sacred writings that Timothy would have had, which would have been the Old Testament, the scriptures. But notice also what Paul says, all scripture, the totality of scripture that we have today from Genesis to maps. Okay, are you guys awake? Genesis to Revelation, but somehow in the back of your Bible you have maps, okay? So I've got a map in the back of my Bible, so it's... Anyway, from Genesis to Revelation, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Very interesting expression used there. It's, it's, the, it's the Greek word theonistos, theos, God, pneuma, breathed. It's the God-breathed word. Now, what does it mean that the Scripture is God-breathed? It means that God so powerfully breathed out his word to the human writers of the scripture so that what we have written down as the final product is exactly what God wanted written down. It's his exact word. Now, some of your translations use the word inspired. All scriptures inspired by God. There's nothing wrong with that translation. But the word inspiration carries a, an interesting meaning in our culture today. We can say something was, is very inspiring or a person got inspired to do something. So, for example, Shakespeare was very inspired to write Romeo and Juliet. Or the Golden State Warriors were inspired to win a championship last year and they're inspired to repeat again this year. Or Bono was inspired to write that U2 song. That's not what the Bible means here when it talks about it being inspired. Now, the Bible is inspiring when you read it. It brings inspiration. It helps you. But that's not what the word means here. It means that the final product that we have is the God-breathed word in its entirety. It means that God so powerfully breathed out his word to human authors so that they wrote down exactly what God wanted them to write. Now, Here's the issue. We don't know exactly how God did that. We aren't told the process in which God did this. How did God work in the hearts and minds of the human writers to write down exactly what he wanted them to write? We really don't know actually how that process worked. We get a clue in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 21. This is the best answer we have. And so we've got to take with what the Scripture tells us. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. 
No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the human authors were powerfully and supernaturally guided in some way by the Holy Spirit of God himself in their hearts and their minds to write down exactly what God wanted written down. Now, I do not think God bypassed their personalities. I think each writer has their own personality. Each writer has their own background. Each writer has their own flavor, their own tone. It's not like a stenographer in a courtroom where, where God's talking and they're just typing what God's telling them or, or a parrot, you know, parroting. I think God did this supernaturally through their hearts and minds to write down exactly what God wanted written down so that what we have is all Scripture being breathed out by God. All Scripture being God's infallible Word, which leads to some conclusions. Therefore, if this is God's exact Word, we must believe that the entire Bible is absolutely true without any errors. The Bible is absolutely true without any errors in all that it teaches. Because God is not going to lie or give us misinformation. As a matter of fact, Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said it and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? God does not lie. He's not going to give, he's not going to superintend a process through which human writers are going to write down things that are false. Also, we find out from Psalm 12, verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words. Like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. I'm going to have to blow my nose here, so excuse me. (laughs) Proverbs 30, verse 5. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. And then John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So what does the Bible say about itself? The Bible claims for itself that it is God's word, it's God's breathed out word, it is a word that's absolutely true, it is a word that is trustworthy. Now, let's ask some specific questions. How reliable is the Old Testament? So I'm asking the question, how do you know what you have in your Old Testament is reliable? How do you know that what happened in the Old Testament is true? And not just some made up fables. Jonah getting swallowed by a big fish. A flood, the parting of the Red Sea. Well, let me give you some arguments. I can't give them all in a sermon, but let me just give you a few arguments. Here's my first evidence or my first argument. I think this is a pretty important one. Jesus himself believed in the authority of the entirety of Scripture, even down to the most minute details. So Jesus himself believed in the authority of the Old Testament. Matthew 5, 17 through 18. This is Jesus speaking. Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus is talking about the Old Testament here, the law and the prophets, the summation of the Old Testament, the entirety of the written Old Testament. And the ESV uses an iota and a dot, Some of the older translations say jot and tittle. 
The iota is the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. So Jesus is probably referring to uh, the Old Testament letters in the Hebrew language, but, but the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet is the yod, or the jot, or the tittle. It's the smallest stroke of a pen. And so what Jesus is saying here by saying jot and tittle or iota and yod, or this, he's saying that the Old Testament, down to the very minutest stroke of a pen, is authoritative. It's God's word. It will not pass away. Notice the permanency there. It will not pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but God's word will not pass away. So Jesus himself trusted in the reliability of the Old Testament as the very word of God, down to the most minute of details. And secondly, second evidence, Jesus believed that the scriptures revealed actual facts of history. And let me give you an example of this. Because what some people will do will say, those things that happen in the Old Testament, those are allegories, those are fables, those are fairy tales that just some ancient people made up to help people become spiritual. Listen to what Jesus says about some historical events. Matthew 12, 40-42. This is Jesus speaking. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish... So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now what does Jesus do here? Jesus believes that Jonah was literally swallowed by a fish. He doesn't allegorize it. He doesn't say, oh, by the way, disciples, you know that's not really true. You know, that, that's just a story that people made up, and it's just an allegory. We know that a person really can't be swallowed by a fish and vomited up on, on dry land, so I'm just going to kind of allegorize it. No, Jesus makes it literal, because what does he tie it to? His resurrection. He says, just as Jonah was literally three days in the belly of the fish, I'm going to literally be three days into the earth and going to rise again on the third day. So Jesus does not allegorize or fabulize or fairytaleize Old Testament passages. He looks at the Jonah narrative as literal historical event. So here's the point. If Jesus himself had the highest view of the authority and reliability of Scripture, then does not it make sense that we as his followers should as well? Here's the point. If it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for us. If Jesus had the high view of the Old Testament, we should have that same view as well. Now, I could spend a lot of time on prophecies. All the prophecies that came true from the Old Testament to the New, down to the minute detail and the historical um, timing of that and to the geography of that. And we could, we could spend a lot of time on that, and I'm not going to do that because I think that it would just take too much time. But what I'm going to talk about today is something that's very important that a lot of Christians hear about but you may not know about. One of the greatest proofs for the reliability of the Old Testament comes in the archaeological evidence found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. A lot of people talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls, but you may not know about what the significance of the Dead Sea Scrolls was. Okay, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1947. 
little shepherd boy goes down into the caves of Qumran, down by the Dead Sea. He throws a rock in a cave, hears something shatter, goes in, shatters a pot. In the pot, they have ancient scrolls of the Old Testament, portions of every single book except for Esther and Nehemiah. Okay, 1947. Now, go back to 1000 A.D. 1000 A.D., was the earliest manuscript that we had of the Old Testament. It was called the Leningrad Codex from 1000 A.D. So think about it. From 1000 A.D. to 1947, the Old Testament was being translated or copied or or transmitted from that Leningrad Codex. So I'm not good at math, but that's how, how many years? 947 years? So almost 1,000 years. Okay, so you're talking the King James, you're talking all Bible translations up to 1947 were based upon the Leningrad Codex of 1000 A.D. Okay, why are the Dead Sea Scrolls important? Because the Dead Sea Scrolls dated back to 250 B.C. to A.D. 50. So here's what they did, and it makes perfect sense. What would you do if you found the Dead Sea Scrolls? Okay, so you lay out your 1947 King James Bible. And you lay out your 1000 AD Leningrad Codex. And maybe a bunch of different translations in between. And then you lay out your Dead Sea Scrolls, which go way back to 250 BC. And what are you looking for? From 250 BC to 1947, all those years, what are you looking for? Changes, discrepancies, mistranslations. What did they discover? 99.9% accuracy of way back here in the Dead Sea Scrolls to what they had in 1947. So for over almost 2,000 years, the Old Testament had been transmitted, translated accurately to what they found up to 1947 matched what was way back in antiquity. Now that's a miracle. Here's another bit of archaeological evidence that just happened a few years ago. So back in 1970, in a synagogue excavation in En Gedi, Israel, archaeologists found a burnt scroll. Now, with a burnt scroll, you do not want to open a burnt scroll because what happens if you open it? It disintegrates and crumbles. So they couldn't open it to see what it was. So in 2014, they had 3D imaging. Like all the modern technology that they didn't have back in 1970, they did a 3D image of this scroll. And they found out it was the scroll of Leviticus. And it had the first eight verses of the book of Leviticus. This is the second oldest dated piece of archaeology we have next to the Dead Sea Scrolls. So what do you do with that? You compare that to all the Leviticuses you've had up until that point. And what they find? No change the reliability of the Old Testament. Also, there was a great archaeological find a few years ago that relates to Egypt and what we've been studying. So if you trace the Exodus and all the cities that the Israelites went went outside the Exodus, there's a list of cities that are in the Bible. Well, they actually found on a temple wall in Karnak, Egypt, dating all the way back to 1450 B.C., that same list of cities that the Israelites traveled 
going out of Egypt. Okay. So how reliable is the Old Testament? Jesus believed it was reliable. Jesus took it literally. And archaeology through the Dead Sea Scrolls has proved that what we have has been transmitted accurately. So what we have today, we can trust when it comes to the Old Testament. Okay. Well, let's talk about the New Testament. Question number three. How reliable is the New Testament? Here's a newsflash for you. We do not have any original copies of the New Testament. There's no original. It's called a manuscript or an autograph. We have no original Matthew. No original John in existence. But what we do have are 5,752 ancient copies of the Bible in the New Testament. Now you may say, well, that's an interesting number. Let me have you compare that to other ancient texts during that time. Okay, so what's a famous book of antiquity that's around that same time? It's Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. How many manuscripts do you have of the Iliad? Copies. 2,200. It's the next closest in number to the New Testament. And it's not even half. The Odyssey has about 141. The Institutes by Gaius was written in the 2nd century, has three manuscripts. The History of Rome, written in the 1st century, one manuscript. The Jewish War by Jewish historian Josephus have 50 manuscripts. Also, when you look at the manuscripts of the New Testament, there's a shortened gap between when they're written and when they're discovered. So when was the New Testament written? 80, between AD 50 and AD 95. Okay, so 8095 is probably when Revelation was written, the very last book. The oldest existing fragment that we have, so the oldest existing fragment we have of the New Testament was from AD 125, so we're talking about 30 to 40 years later. It's called P52. It's of John 18. So you start seeing copies 30 years after the originals as opposed to 200, 300 years later, like you do with some ancient documents. Now, here's what Bart Ehrman says. Here's Bart Ehrman's argument. Remember Bart Ehrman, the ex-evangelical who went off to college, got um, into academia, and now is denying the truth? Here's what his argument is. Because we don't have the original manuscripts, you don't have the original, all we have are copies, what we have today are corrupted. What we have today have been lost in translation. What you have today cannot be trusted because you don't have that original manuscript. You don't have that original Matthew. Now, how would you argue against him? What would you say to him? Here's what you would say to him. It's not the parchment that it was written on that's inerrant. It's the words, not the material. So we have the words of God preserved for us. That's what's inspired. That's what's inerrant. That's what's trustworthy. The actual words that God spoke, not the original parchment or papyrus that it was on. So if you have a copy of the original, and it's the, the original words, you still have an infallible, inerrant, trustworthy message. So here's the point. When you have over 5,700 ancient manuscripts, and they're from all over the world at that time, and they're probably in about three or four different languages, 
what are you going to do with those documents? What would you do? If you, were, if you were doing a textual search of those documents, what would you do? You'd lay all 5,000 of them out side by side, right? You'd lay all 5,000 of them out side by side, and what would you do? You'd meticulously go through each of them to find what? Discrepancies, mistakes, scribal errors, major changes. Okay, so over a 200-year period of time of these transmissions and copies of the New Testament, you lay all 5,700 out there, what do you think you're going to find? Major changes, right? 99% of them are all the same. Now, what's the 1%? Little minor scribal errors where they put the word the as opposed to of or a as opposed to an. Little incidental things that don't affect theology, don't affect meaning, more just little tiny articles or prepositions. You would think that if you had 5,700 manuscripts over a long period of time, with that many of them, you'd see major changes, major shifts, major discrepancies, but we don't. Now, think about it this way. Remember the telephone game you guys played as kids? Okay, but We could do it right now. We have 20 kids in a circle, and the first person starts out. You know, it says a little thing. It goes around the circle, and finally it gets to the last person. What does the last person do? They share what was said. And what, is, what does the first person say? That's, that's nowhere near what I just said. Now, that's with 20 kids in just a five-minute period of time. It gets messed up. You've got the entire New Testament over almost 200 years with 5,700 manuscripts and no mess up. To me, that's a miracle of God who he, trans, he, he, he superintended that process of transmission. Now, you may not like the fact that we don't have an original. You may think, you know what, I'm not going to trust it if we don't have an original. Well, you may not like that you don't have an original. You may not like that that's not the way God did it. That's not a good argument against inerrancy, against their reliability. It's the words that are reliable, not the original parchment upon which they were written. So here's the issue. The Bible was written by 40 different authors over more than a 1,000-year period of time, and they have a consistent message, a unified theme, no provable contradictions, and we have thousands of manuscript evidence. No other ancient manuscript has that much documented evidence. Book of Mormon doesn't have that. The Quran doesn't have it. Iliad and Odyssey don't have it. Here's an interesting thing that also you find at the end of Bart Ehrman's book. In his book, Misquoting Jesus, there's a Q&A section at the end of the book, and there's an interesting question that somebody asks him. Quote, why do you believe these core tenets of Christian orthodoxy to be in jeopardy based upon the mistakes you claim are in the biblical manuscripts? So the question is, if there's all these mistakes that you claim, there's probably some major doctrines that have been affected over the years that we're just getting wrong because of all this stuff. Here's his answer. So this is Bart Ehrman, the guy that says all the manuscripts are corrupted. Here's his answer. Quote, essential Christian beliefs are not affected by these mistakes in the New Testament. So he even admits it. Now, maybe you're not convinced by citing what the Bible says about itself, about what the New Testament says about itself, what the Old Testament says about itself. Maybe you want some more evidence. So let me give you a little bit more evidence. What about historical writers from that period who were not Christian? 
who didn't have a skin in the game, who actually may have been anti-Christian, who were not biased. What did they say about Jesus, about the Bible? Well, in the 90s A.D., Josephus, a Jewish historian, wrote the Jewish Antiquities, and he mentions Jesus rising from the dead. This is a Jewish secular historian that has no skin in the game. He actually attests to the historical resurrection of Jesus. He says, quote, On the third day he appeared to them restored to life, for the prophets of God had prophesied these and countless other marvelous things about him. He believed in Jesus' resurrection just simply from his historical evidence. Tacitus wrote the first major history of Rome called the Annals of the Imperial Roman Empire in A.D. 113. He mentions, quote, that Christ, the founder of Christianity, had undergone the death penalty and the reign of Tiberius by the sentence of Pontius Pilate in Jerusalem. He names Pontius Pilate. He names Jerusalem. He reigns Jesus. He talks about the cross as a historical event. Pliny the Younger wrote a book called The Letters in Book 10. He talked about Christians having the habit of meeting on Sundays and singing hymns to this man named Christ as if he was God. Now, why are these so important that, that outsiders, non-Christians, are attesting to the validity of Christianity? Because there's no pro-Christian bias. Why would they give a bias? They didn't need to. Now, here's a side note I would want to challenge you with. If you're here today and you, you, uh, you don't believe the reliability of the Bible, let me just give you a kind challenge. I've heard a lot of people say over the years, I just don't believe the Bible. And I will ask them, what parts of it do you not believe? And there's some silence. So let me just ask you this. If you're going to test the validity of the scriptures, you, in all honesty, need to read the scriptures. And don't just read a few verses. I challenge you to read it from Genesis to Revelation. And read it honestly, read it openly, and read it with an open mind. And see if they find any inherent contradictions based upon just reading. I find a lot of people say, I don't believe the Bible, but they never actually read the Bible. Now, I've addressed some questions, some objections, historical issues, but let's bring this down to practicality because I don't want to lose the forest for the trees. What, what does this all mean for us as Bible-believing Christians today if we believe in the reliability of the Bible? Here's a few things. First, we must believe that Scripture has a fixed historical meaning that transcends culture and does not change over time. This is important in our day and age. Because what are people saying today? Oh, what they believed back then was archaic. They, they weren't as enlightened back then. They didn't have all the facts. We've evolved over time, and so therefore we need to evolve with the times, and therefore some things we don't like about the Bible that were way back then, we can change. And we say to that, no, the Bible has a fixed meaning. What it meant 2,000 years ago, it means today. It does not change over time. Now, we may not like what it says, but we have no right to change what it says because it has a fixed meaning. What our culture is doing today, and especially among evangelicals, is saying we're going to pick and choose what parts of the Bible we're going to accept based upon the culture. Now, what happens if, like 100 years from now, the culture has some very weird things that happen? Well, then it's, you're always picking and changing based upon what culture is around you. Let's say in 20 years, all blonde-haired, blue-eyed guys should be in prison. So all of us that are blonde-haired and blue-eyed guys are in prison. And that's the culture. And so in 20 years, people start interpreting the Bible by saying, well, you know, we need to start putting all blonde-haired, blue-eyed guys in prison because that's what the Bible says. I mean, if you start interpreting the Bible based upon culture, you can make it say whatever you want depending on whatever culture you're in. So there's a fixed meaning that transcends culture. Second, we must believe the Bible is the supreme and final authority on all matters of faith and practice. 
the supreme and final authority, which means that what God says is the final authority. Listen to Isaiah 66, 1 through 2. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What is the house that you've built for me and what is the place for my rest? All these things my hand has made and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who's humble and contrite in spirit and does what? Trembles at my word. We are in a position of of being fearful under the authority of God's word. What people have done in the cultures, they said, you know what, I'm going to be an authority over the Bible. I'll pick and choose what I want the Bible to say and how it applies to me, as opposed to saying, no, actually, we're to submit ourselves under the authority of the Bible. It's the supreme and final authority. It does not change. I need to adjust my life to it. It doesn't need to adjust itself to me. I adjust my life to the scriptures. I tremble at this word. Third, we must believe that the Bible alone is sufficient for growth in godliness and in church life together. It's sufficient. It's all that we need. Notice what Paul says there. Let's go back to our text. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. All Scripture, that is the totality of the written word, is breathed out by God. It's it's theonistos. It's actually God's word written. And it's profitable. That means useful. It's advantageous. It's beneficial. It's beneficial for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Um, if you take the Growing Beyond Sunday that's out on the resource table, the, the, the weekly devotional sheet, I unpack those four things for you in more detail in some personal application. But it's, it's profitable to help you grow, that you may be complete, equipped, proficient. The scripture is all that you need to grow which means that we should add nothing to the Scripture or take away anything from the Scripture. What does Revelation 22, 18 and 19 say? I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life in the holy city, which are described in this book. That's talking specifically about the book of Revelation, but I think by extension it can be the entire Bible. We don't have the right to take away We don't have the right to add. This is God's sufficient, authoritative, God-breathed word for us in its entirety, and we submit to what he has given to us. Greg Allison, who is the church history professor at Southern Seminary, he, he urges this, quote, The church must proclaim clearly, urgently, persuasively, and I like what he says here, the word of God without confusion, without change without compromise as its first order of business. And that's the church's position. That's our church's mission. It should be yours as well. So here's what I'm asking you. Will you believe that the Bible is the breathed out word of God and it's free from all error? It's God's word. Will you believe in the reliability of the Bible? Both from its internal evidence as well as from archaeology and history and all the manuscript evidence that we have. Those are important things. A lot of Christians give lip service. I believe the Bible. I believe the reliability of the Bible. I believe the Bible is inspired. I believe the Bible is God's word. I believe the Bible. But here's the ultimate test. 
Will you submit yourself under the authority of the Bible? And not just, hey, I believe the Bible, but would you actually live out what it says? It's one thing to say, I believe this. It's another thing to live it and live it consistently. What does James 1.22 say? But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. Because see, here's the issue that concerns me as a pastor. Whether you know it or not, eternity hangs in the balance depending on how you understand God's word. We have a younger generation that's at risk of losing the authority of the word, and not just a younger generation, but all generations. The culture's growing more hostile. The church is abandoning in large the authority of the Bible. So we're swimming upstream in this tide. So what I'm asking us as a church to do is to hold fast to the authority of the Bible without confusion. We don't want to be confusing. Without change. We don't want to change this word. And without compromise. We don't want to compromise. So would we be a church? Would you be individuals? Would we be a people that would do that? And let me just say this. If you're here today and you have questions, or you have some skeptical understanding, or you, 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 you didn't get all your questions asked, would you please, please come back next week as we address these topics in more detail? Maybe come see me after the service. Email me. Talk to the person that brought you. We want this to be a safe place where you can understand and talk and get your questions asked. We're not trying to force this down your throat. We're just trying to present it to you so that you can get all the facts and then, then let the Lord work on your heart to show you these truths. But we don't want anybody leaving here with, their, with questions unanswered. So if you do have more questions, don't be afraid to come see me. I may, I may plead the fifth and say, I have no idea what your answer is to your question, but I will try to go find it and do the best I can. We just want to be a church, and we want to be individuals. We want to be a family that holds fast to the Word of God without confusion, without change, and without compromise. So I pray that we hold fast to that as a church family. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. <clears throat> and let's just go into a, a time of prayer. And you may be struggling with the authority of God's word, or you may have that nailed down in your heart. You, I'm not sure where you are this morning, but I guess the main thing is it's one thing to believe the word of God, it's another thing to actually live it and live under its authority. We want to be a people that tremble at your word. We want to live under the authority of your word. We want to believe in the reliability of your word. And, and more importantly, Lord Jesus, we want to be those that are not just hearers of your word, but doers. We can give lip service all day to the truth of your word, but Lord, if we're not living according to your word, uh, we deceive ourselves. So give us grace, give us power this week to live according to your scripture, to be different from the world around us, to be distinct, to be your people Father, I pray if there's anybody in this room that does have doubts, that may have some um, just questions, that, Lord, you would just answer those deep in their hearts. Lord, help this to be a helpful time. And, Lord, let this be a, a place where they can come and, and be encouraged and, and, and be loved. Lord, we want people to experience the love of Christ here, the encouragement of Christ here. We want to address people's questions in, in, in healthy ways. And so, Lord, help that to happen. Lord, just help us to be a church that's faithful to your word <clears throat> without compromise, without change, and without confusion. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.